Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. Hello and welcome along to this week's Football Digest with myself, Ned Keating. No John Cross, sadly, this week, so I'm going to try my best to uh, to fill his rather large hosting shoes and hopefully do my best there. Thankfully, we do have one familiar face on the show this week in Matt Dunn, uh, but we're also joined by Ryan Taylor from the Bag Express and Neil Moxley of the Sunday People to digest all of football's biggest talking points. Uh, plenty to get through this morning, fellas. Um, we've got a Premier League preview to look ahead to, some, some big tasty fixtures in that to come. Uh, also going to look back at Lionel Messi picking up another award, this time the FIFA Best Award on Monday. But first things first, Matt, going to come to you about the FA Cup. Um, we did see some big shocks, but we're going to focus on the big teams perhaps that have gone through so far. Uh, and Manchester United as well. What a what a week it's kind of been for them um, so far. To get past Barcelona, dig deep, having to get past Barcelona in the Europa League, then beat Newcastle to win the Carabao Cup at the weekend, and having to dig deep again against West Ham United. What a difference... You know, not even 12 months. I'd say we'll, we'll probably flash back to August when, when Eric Ten Hag first took charge and, and those games against Brighton, against Brentford. Um, you know, to say that Manchester United would be in this position and showing that that hunger, that fight, that desire that we're seeing in this team and especially last night to come from a goal down against West Ham to, to also overcome the disappointment of uh, a first equaliser being chalked off for VAR. This is a, a very dogged, very determined Manchester United side that we're seeing now and, and that victory last night was testament to it. Well, the quadruple is on. So, yeah, they're, they're still going all, all guns blazing. Um, I didn't see that. I was at Arsenal last night, so uh, missed the, the finer details, but we're obviously following events uh, closely. And uh, it's no surprise in the, with the current United team that they did come back. Um, I was there at Wembley on Sunday. The spirit in the team is clearly absolutely top-notch at the minute. The, the, I mean, you celebration videos and whatever else that went on afterwards. You, you perhaps sneer at in, in years gone by, but it has been such dark days for the club that, that it's the sort of spirit that, that they need. And, you know, he, he see, seems to be putting out results that, uh, you know, churning them out regularly in such a way. There's so much momentum there at the moment. I, I genuinely think the quadruple's beyond them. Um, I don't think they're, they're, they're going to quite have the momentum to catch Arsenal or p- possibly even City. Um, but, you know, they they take a, a second cup as well and uh, and throw in the, the Europa League. Yeah, that'd be a pretty decent season for them. That seems that seemed pretty a uh, long way away, certainly since probably Fergie there. So yeah, no, they they're, they're a team absolutely at the moment. Um, the only question mark is yeah, he's lifted them, have got them going. It's it's when they do dip, yeah, how they bounce back. That's always the ultimate test, and then they've got that test to come. But I, you know, there's no reason why they shouldn't pass that with flying colours, bounce back from a knockback and keep going again. So, uh, so yeah, they're, they're, I think they're the team to be in, in the FA Cup, certainly. Right, a good week for the red half for Manchester, but also a fairly decent week for the blue half too. Manchester City going through to the FA Cup quarterfinals with victory over Bristol City on Tuesday night. This is a competition that hasn't really normally gone to plan for Man City. Only one for Pep Guardiola since he's, uh, since he's arrived in England. But it does look like we're kind of almost building. We're not going to get it in the quarterfinals. We might get it in the semifinals. But there's that kind of sense of inevitability and what an occasion it would be should it happen that there is a, a Manchester derby in an FA Cup final or even a semifinal for that matter if we are to get it a little bit earlier than perhaps many would uh, would be hoping for, at least the neutrals at least. Yeah, I think we'd be looking at the draw. There is, you know, 
they're, they're the two teams that, that stand out now. And it does feel like a, a year of the underdog in a sense that, you know, some of the teams that have made their way into the quarterfinals, particularly Grimsby of League Two, are not even having a, a great season by all accounts. And then you've got, you know, Sheffield United who are promotion hopefuls and, and Blackburn. But it, that that is kind of the sadness about about the draw. It does feel like a feeling of a inevitability about the the two Manchester clubs. But, you know, it, that's not to say it wouldn't be a great, you know, prospect to see them to lock horns in the final. I think at the moment, the way it's poised, it, it's a clash of styles. Certainly you've got, you know, United who are firing on all cylinders and, and City are a team that you don't really know, you know, what City are going to turn up at the moment. I think the fact Pep went strong at Bristol City in, in midweek does show clear intent that he wants to, you know, get the FA Cup uh, won this season. As you mentioned, not had the, the best record in the competition in the past few years. Um, but I'd very much like to see a, you know, an upset in a sense that, you know, maybe a Fulham or, um, or you know, even Burnley potentially progress. And it, it, it does um, open the door to a potential upset. But at the same time, I do feel those two sides are just going to be too strong for all that's left. Neil, in terms of what we've seen so far in the FA Cup, and especially in this round, um, you know, that's why I touched on there, some great upsets, you know, obviously Sheffield United knocking out Tottenham, uh, unfortunately for me being a Spurs fan. Um, Leicester going out of the hands of Blackburn Rovers um, as well. But the biggest one of all, of course, came on the South Coast, Grimsby uh, getting that win over Southampton. Um, I'm sure, you know, kind of, I, I remember speaking about this on our Monday show and it kind of had all the hallmarks, really, I thought, of, of an FA Cup shock. I kind of almost expected Grimsby to get it done. That shouldn't take away from what they did. Nonetheless, a, a terrific achievement for them. But there was a point raised on uh, Match of Day's coverage of the, the, the Sheffield United Tottenham game last night that Gary Lineker tried to, to kind of almost suggest that where we've got you know, half, half the teams left in the draw now at the quarterfinal stage are, are from the championship or below. And Gary Lineker tried to point that in the direction of maybe the fact that it was due to a, uh, a the, the World Cup taking place in mid-season. I myself, I can't really see that that reason for it in that, you know, obviously the championship clubs themselves had that break. Yes, they didn't have as many players at the World Cup as the Premier League clubs. But is there perhaps, you know... <laughs> these teams kind of maybe want it more. You look at Southampton particularly and you had to, you know, kind of say to the fans they would have loved the cup run for sure but these players, are, they, are their minds perhaps focused and likewise Leicester, Tottenham still in that top four race, yes, the trophy would have done great for them but are minds perhaps focused on these players, uh, for these players at least, on other things at this stage in the season and may have allowed these uh, these shocks to take place? Well, you know, I, th- I think there may be an element to that. I think it's more to do with the fact that, for instance, um, you know, like you say, uh, Black- I was at Leicester Blackburn on Tuesday night, and it was quite clear that uh, Blackburn came to uh, bloody the noses of uh, Leicester. They were on the front foot throughout. Uh, they had two and a half thousand fans there. They packed out the away end. Um, it was quite clear to me um, that there was, you know, that old cliche that one side wanted it more, and that that side was was Blackburn Rovers. Yes, you can toss into the uh, equation that um, you know Leicester have got uh, Premier League survival on their minds, and obviously with the, all, all the cash that goes with it, that's going to be uppermost. Um, and but if you look at the other uh, teams, for instance, I mean Southampton have got all sorts of structural issues. I, I didn't expect them to get turned over by a, um, a League Two uh, team that's not um, turning up many trees uh, this season. I did see them last. Um, they are going. They did go into it with with some momentum this season. I saw them beat uh, my own team, Solio Moors, in the National League playoff final last year. So you know there is some momentum there, and it's great to see because you know Grimsby for so long have been uh, down in the dumps and. You know, I've always pretty much become a footballing afterthought. So it's lovely to see them get some time in the sun. I think it's a combination of factors, Ned. 
I think yes, some teams will will have particular will have particular momentum behind them, such as Blackburn. It was nine games unbeaten, nine games in a month. They're clearly on a roll. There's clearly something happening there. Um, John Dahl Thomason has got them playing some um, very attractive stuff. Leicester, you might say, are on a bit of a downer. So I, I don't think we can look at. I think Gary's perhaps looking a bit too uh, romantically at it and trying to uh, come up with a reason why. I mean, just looking at the draw, I thought it was really interesting because if you'd flipped all the away teams to being the home teams, I think we'd have a really interesting and intriguing um, quarterfinal listing um, uh, clashes uh, taking place. But unfortunately, it seems as though, you know, the, the bigger guns are going to get through. But, you know, I wouldn't totally write off um, Fulham and I've seen Burnley this season. You know, uh, Vincent Company's got them playing some really nice stuff. So, I wouldn't say it's a foregone conclusion, but yeah, you you know you'd be hard pressed to look beyond the big guns again, you know, going into the uh, last eight. And there was Grimsby fans looking forward to a potential day out at Wembley. Um, of course, there was some Premier League action uh, last night as well on Wednesday night, Matt. And, and and you mentioned there that obviously you were at Arsenal uh, for their game against Everton. Um, that that's quite a statement win. I know obviously Everton are where they want to be, and and they're obviously uh, towards the bottom of the table. But for Arsenal, you know. That's a real big kind of confidence move to show that the goals are back in the side again. Gabriel Martinelli looks to be in, in, in brilliant scoring form at the minute too. Um, and especially after Mikel Arteta had said after the win at, uh, at Leicester at the weekend about how it needs more goals from midfield and, and everyone else chipping in to then go and score four at home. Well, you know, when the manager lays down the goal, it, it's always nice to see the team react in such a way. Oh, no, it was an incredible performance, but I mean... Everton, for, I mean, Jordan Pickford was wasting time inside the first 10 minutes. And uh, when you see that happening, you know what they're there. And you could really sense the, the Emirates, the, the crowd, were getting quite frustrated by all. But the players just didn't seem bothered. And yeah, they just kept playing their game, which is such an impressive thing to be able to do for young players that they've got. Um, and then they just learned a really neat goal to, to, to kick us off with. And then an absolute horlicks of a piece of defending. Um, the the game in the second, then it was game over, and the second half became a bit of a turkey shoot. When yeah, Arsenal could have scored as many as they wanted to. That's that's sort of how impressive they are. But that is the sort of performance of champions. Uh, you know, you you fight the hard battle for forty minutes. You put up with whatever the the team that's come to defend against you are going to do in terms of you know play acting and all sorts of falling over and everything else. And they just rode it, got their the um got the uh, really neat opening goal, bit of luck for the second, and then just took full advantage. And you know they've got three of the the next uh, four games are at home against uh, I think it's Bournemouth, Palace, and Leeds, which you would have down as winnable home games. And suddenly you know that's nine points, they're more points in the bag. Um, and you know City are running out of games to catch them. So however impressive City can be, it's and then they do get to go first this weekend, of course put a bit of pressure on but uh, however impressive they are Arsenal seem to have an answer and you know increasingly it's going to take something remarkable to catch them Ryan the other Premier League game on Wednesday night was Liverpool's uh, win against Wolves 2-0 uh, at Anfield for the host they're now just uh, what is it six points off off the top four maybe I'm getting a bit carried away here but they've got a game in hand on Tottenham yes Newcastle are between themselves and Spurs and do have a game in hand on Liverpool and two on Tottenham but I mean, that win, that was probably much needed after the last two games that they had that, that 5-2 loss to Real Madrid and, and that draw against uh, Crystal Palace at the weekend. But three wins in four in the Premier League now, 4 unbeaten. You know, we talk about Arsenal and, and trying to build momentum in the title race. Liverpool may be slowly, but surely, again, maybe I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here, but look like they might be starting to put a bit of momentum back together in the league at least uh, as they look to close in on the top four. 
Yeah, I think it was a, a psychological battle, really, the, the match. I think the longer it sort of went into the second half with the scores level, he did start to sort of have doubts as to whether Liverpool had that character to, to get over the line and find a winner. Obviously, they got two goals in the end through uh, Van Dijk and Salah. But I think it's just about, as I said, overcoming that that mental battle. I think the Palace draw on, on Saturday was a real sort of another setback. Um, and it was quite interesting to see, actually, that, you know, prior to the game, there was actually tickets up for grabs for the, the match. And, you know, as long as I can remember, I don't re- ever remember that being the, the case for, you know, particularly a, a midweek game. Um, and Liverpool really need to... Anfield bouncing for for all of the games for the rest of the season if they're to to get back into the top four. I do feel like there is a bit of momentum building now, as you said. I think the Everton and Newcastle wins were essential, really. But you did sort of question whether that Real Madrid one would be a you know another sort of setback you know they struggle to psychologically recover from. But I think the fact they found um, you know two late goals and and got a win heading into Sunday's game against. Manchester United, which of, of course will be a different challenge altogether. I do feel like that was really vital. You know, those two points um, from a draw to a win, you know, last night can certainly prove the difference between, you know, top four come the end of the season and, and with Spurs still to play at Anfield, I feel like, you know, Liverpool really are starting to come up the hill now, even though it's clear they're still, um, you know, they're not the side of old and they're in desperate need of uh, some reinvestment in the summer. Neil, moving on now, um, Lionel Messi picked up another award. Of course, you know, that, that trophy cabinet, you know, even just for the individual awards must be the size of most people's houses by now. But Lionel Messi has picked up another award, was named uh, FIFA the best men's player of 2022 on Monday night in Paris. Um, and I suppose there's nothing really more for me to say other than he was probably the most deserved winner, given what happened in Qatar at the back end of 2022. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, if if he'd been overlooked for the the uh, prize, I think everybody would have been scratching their heads and, and saying, "Well, you know, it was you know effectively Messi's World Cup." So, you know, what are you doing? I mean, I did see a post by Karim Benzema sort of outlining his uh, list of magnificent achievements, um, and and I totally get where he is. But uh, you know, it's just um, I wouldn't say it shows a lack of self awareness, but you know, if, if he took a step back and actually looked at um, you know the sort of finale to twenty twenty two that Messi was involved in. It's very difficult to argue against him winning it again, whether or not he had a fantastic domestic season. Or you know, it, it really sort of all came down to the you know the glorious swan song swan song uh, in Doha. So I've got um you know I've got I don't think I think we'd all be you know saying how can they possibly ignore Lionel Messi if he, if he hadn't won it? I've got some sympathy with Benzema, for instance, but yeah, it's difficult to look beyond his claims to the ultimate prize. You know, and, and for what he's what he's done for the game and the, and the way he's conducted himself. Um, you know, there's not there's not been the sort of preening showmanship that we've seen with Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, who's really done little to um, uh, improve his his reputation over the last uh, twelve months. Uh, but Messi, you know, has get, kept his head down, kept playing his football, and to be honest, you know, as a role model as well. You know, if you're looking for somebody, then you you know you're looking already at the perfect footballer. Matt, Lionel Messi wasn't the only Argentinian uh, to win big on the night. It was joined by countryman Emiliano Martinez uh, of Aston Villa winning the goalkeeper's award and Lionel Scaloni, uh, the manager of that Argentinian World Cup winning side, picking up the coach award as well. In terms of that Argentinian clean sweep, was it the right decision? The right, you know, obviously everyone has a vote and, and they all came to that conclusion and they all polled the highest. But 
was it right for them three Argentinian players to pick up all those awards or, or are there some that maybe could feel a little bit aggrieved that they didn't perhaps pick up maybe the goalkeeper award or, or the coaches award? Um, yeah, I, I do think it's a bit of a shame and, and an opportunity missed. Uh, it's the FIFA awards. So obviously the World Cup, you know, bless Karim Benzema, he doesn't quite get it, but it's obviously the World Cup's going to play highly in that. Uh, and to that end, I thought it was a remarkable World Cup for a number of reasons, not least of which finally the emergence of an African team. And I think in either of those, Scaloni obviously did well, but um, uh, what he regretted me was, was a very oppressive figure at the World Cup, dealing with so many social issues, uh, as well as um, you know the football side of things. He could have perhaps been given, uh, yeah, had it his uh, cap off to him uh, for his achievements, or, or even you know um, if the Moroccan goalkeeper, it was a. Uh, yeah, Yassin Bounou, it wasn't a great World Cup for goalkeepers. I mean, even Jordan Pickford was up there amongst the candidates, so it can't have been that special. But uh, but I just think it was a little bit box-ticking exercise by the various people who voted who just went for the obvious choices. And and it's a chance to celebrate world football. So so let's, you know, just think outside the box of it a little bit more. And, uh, and, and yeah, I think, you know, uh, Benzema feels he was aggrieved. I, I feel that the, the Moroccan achievement was perhaps underplayed a little bit. When it comes to the uh, FIFA Men's World Eleven, there were maybe one, perhaps in particular, uh, surprising uh, omission from what happened in the second half of 2022. I am aware that I am saying this the night after Fletcher Van Dijk did score for Liverpool. So I am aware of the irony and I'm aware of how the errors and, and the fears of, of writing a, a running order before before matches take place. Um, and maybe I should, should heed that warning in future. But when it comes to Virgil van Dijk, does it show the standing that he has within the game and how he's still revered by players that even though that's kind of second half of 2022 wasn't as good as that first half and, and let's be honest it hasn't been as good as as Liverpool would have wanted he would have wanted his fans would have wanted you know kind of a, a bit below the standards that we've become accustomed to but he still manages to find a way into this um, 11 and I must say as well if you've not seen it the formation that they use you think Garth Crooks has a, has a crazy formation on a weekly basis we have a, a back three featuring two fullbacks, three midfield and four up top. Um, definitely going for the attacking look on this FIFA Pro Men's eleven. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was a, you know, you looked at it and you thought, hang on, two centre halves. Or I mean, what? Well, I, I just didn't, I just didn't get it. And, and I'm, I do agree with with you in in terms of uh, the season that he's had. You know, I think he was um, peerless uh, over the last uh, couple of years. I, you know, I think thought he was a fully deserving of the European award. Uh, again, you know, you look at it and you wonder whether or not, as Matt sort of uh, suggested, there was a bit of a box sticking exercise going on. You know, we need to make a nod towards some, oh, well, we'll give it to Van Dyke then. I mean, you know, I do wonder whether or not uh, Lissandro Martinez might have got a shout. You know, there's there's plenty of others, that, you know, in, um, he certainly wasn't, for instance, my choice at centre-half um, at the World Cup. You know, I thought Martinez did well. I thought the, um, to be honest, I, you know, again, picking up Matt's point, you know, I thought the lads uh, who played uh, for Morocco deserved a tremendous amount of credit. You know, I was at the Morocco-Spain game and it was pretty much, I know they went through all penalties, but it was pretty much a back-to-the-wall exercise for, for two hours. You know, and you've got to have a, a certain amount of defensive solidity to see you through um, overwhelming um, uh, deficit in possession. So, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, Vir Virgil van Dijk, you know, he's a, he's a class act. Was he as good at, you know, uh, last year as he was in the previous couple? Probably not. Did it show a, a lack of um, lateral thinking in giving him that? Probably, but you know, um, you know, if you're going to come up with you know um, uh, some alternatives, then you know you, you've you've got really got to um, uh, you've got to give it some sort of um, 
uh, qualification. And to be honest with you, I, I think there was other deserving candidates out there. I've outlined a couple, but you know, at the end of the day, again, you're, you're looking at, um, you know, they're looking for big names to win big prizes, and they don't come much bigger. Ryan, we also saw uh, awards handed out for the women's uh, best players as well. Uh, big wins for the Lionesses, Mary Earp, Sabina Veedman picking up the Coach of the Year award for the women's game too. Um, maybe I'm being a bit biased here. I felt that, that Beth Mead was perhaps robbed when it came to the uh, came to the women's best player awards. Alexia Pateas, who obviously missed the women's Euros last year for injury, sadly, uh, picking up that award has been brilliant for, for Barcelona. But I just felt what Beth Mead had done and, and how she took England to, to the title last year. Um, obviously picking up sports personality of the year, so revered within England, maybe not within the world game uh, at the minute as much as, as much as we love her. But just in terms of those awards, great to see the Lionesses rewarded, but you do kind of feel a bit sorry for Beth Mead amongst all of this. Yeah, you do. I feel like, as you said, you know, this is a, a worldwide award, but, you know, internally in, in, in England, we certainly have an appreciation for, you know, all of the work that's been carried out, not only by the individual players, but you know, just the general setup of the Lionesses now, I think it's really shone a light on women's football and it, it's brought a new audience to the game. I think certainly, you know, even from a, a men's perspective, you know, some of us are maybe guilty of not showing enough interest in the women's game. But, you know, what they achieved in the summer was something that, you know, was game changing. You know, I, I've got um, a couple of friends who have daughters and, you know, their heroes are the likes of Alessia Russo. And, you know, it's really sort of inspiring the next generation. So I think, you know, that kind of impact is worth its weight in gold and actually, you know, more important than, than any kind of award you can win, um, you know, at, at the FIFA Awards and, and beyond that. So I feel like certainly as, um, as a team, the Lionesses can be extremely proud of, you know, what they're doing for the next generation. And I certainly think the way Beth Mead has been performing that, you know, she won't be shy of, of more accolades in the future. Of course. And uh, we, we, just on women's football, there are some brilliant episodes uh, uh, from the podcast previously uh, from our brilliant women's football team looking back at the Arnold Park Cup as well. If you're not giving them a listen yet, by all means. Um, so it's some brilliant insight there around the women's game. Ned, can I, just, can I just say one thing? I think, you know, I, I hear what people have said about Bethany and I, and, and I, I know that Mary Oaks has picked up the award, but I pretty much watched. Um, I went to the World Cup in 2019, fortunately, um, and I've, I pretty much watched all of the European Championship games. I think Millie Bright's... Um, exclusion from any general um, of the of awards or recognition has, has been a little short of scandalous. I think England only conceded two goals. I know that's a, always seen as a uh, as some sort of reflection on the goalkeeper's performance, but I think she's been absolutely outstanding. And um, I, can't, I, I really do think it's an oversight that's, that she's been overlooked. And um, I, like I say, I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, take any of the limelight away from Beth Mead or Mary Earps, but I just think it's, it's been absolutely, it's been a bit shocking really that, that Bright's uh, overall contribution to the success of the Lionesses hasn't been, hasn't been given a bit more recognition. I know she doesn't necessarily call the limelight or, you know, um, like I say, the goal, goal scorers always get it. But I think, you know, in terms of, you know, recognition, she really should have had some. Um, and that's uh, from the uh, chairman, obviously, of the Millie Bright fan club here in, in Solnil. Can I also echo what Neil said and all, but but say that I am very pleased that Mary Earps has, has got some recognition because I felt she perhaps was one of the unsung heroes of the summer because there wasn't that much. But but in those latter games, she was dealing with some awkward crosses, taking so much pressure off the England defence that that you know for for all that Beth Mead's oversight, she she's been celebrated elsewhere, and, and she's uh, such a wonderful role model as well. Um, from a speech as well, it's it's just. 
and an absolute um, sort of role model for you, for young girls, determination uh, and self belief. And uh, yeah, there she's she's an incredible goalkeeper that in, in an area which women's football historically was always a, sort of seen as a weak point. But I think in in the modern game, she really showed that that you know you you could be a top class goalkeeper and uh, and really. Um, do your team justice, and she was one of the ones leading the singing after the the final and first one up on the desk, you know, and all the rest of it. So, uh, so now I'm really pleased for her. Yeah, if you've not heard her uh, acceptance speech as well, we see it's definitely worth listening. And as Matt pointed to, there the the one leading the singing that was definitely her being unapologetically herself, as she said on Monday. <laughs> um, just a final point on on these awards, Dad. Just moving back to the men's side of things. Um, Ryan, do you think that the fact that we're still talking about, you know, in that top three, Karen Benzema is still in there, Lionel Messi still in there, you know, previous years gone by, Cristiano Ronaldo's gone in there. The longevity of these guys should be celebrated for sure. But we're still, you know, obviously we have these talents and these stars, you know, we have Kylian Mbappe, we have the next generation coming through. But these guys, the fact that they're able to to still perform at the highest level, and I'm sure, look, we, we do see it in other sports as well. You know, tennis, for example, is, is struggling to see that next generation come through to still be... Djokovic and, and Nadal at their age and, and even Federer was still competing at a high level before he retired. But is there that kind of, should we be praising it in football that we still have these guys performing at this high level for so long and that it's such a great advancement in sciences and how people look after themselves and, and all of that thing? Or should we be worried that these youngsters aren't, you know, kind of taking the game on to that next level perhaps? I see no reason why it shouldn't be celebrated, to be honest. I feel like, you know, certainly... At my age, I, I never really got to experience the the likes of Pele and and Maradona. So for me, growing up, you know, Messi and Ronaldo have always been that, um, the ones who set the bar. And um, I think ultimately, you know, the young guys are going to have their chance to, you know, Messi and Ronaldo aren't going to be a, around forever. Um, but there seems to be some kind of, um, you know, sense that once you hit thirty, you're finished. You know, it's you you see players now. You know, Harry Kane's turning thirty, and and suddenly. You know, everyone's got a perception that he's going to dry up. But if you actually look at the the figures, you know, the likes of Robert Lewandowski, um, Karen Benzema, you know, they're not actually hitting their peak till they're sort of 34, 35. You see the numbers Benzema's put up in the last year. You know, this this idea that once you hit 30, you're going to plateau ridiculously is, is you know, it's absurd really. It's even like, you know, Sadio Mane leaving Liverpool. There was a sense that, you know, he, he shouldn't be handed a, a long-term contract because he's potentially getting to the point where he's over the hill now. But I really don't think that's that's how, um, you know, with sports science, etc. I feel like players can now play until their late 30s. You know, most of these top athletes don't drink alcohol. They look after their bodies. You know, they have their own personal um, nutritionists that will give them their diets, etc. To, to, to follow and dedicate themselves to. Um, and just going back to the initial point that you made there, I feel like Mbappe is already at that level. You know, he he's the one um, that the next of the next generation. Maybe we need to see a few few more players. Some of them haven't quite lived up to expectations. People like Jao Felix, um, but ultimately, I think that is an indication of just how exceptional Messi and and Ronaldo have been. That they've done it at the top level consistently. You know, to get to the top level is the easiest part of it, but to stay there and keep producing those numbers is is always the most difficult element to to be a class player. So, I think we'll start to see other players filter through now. But 
I don't see any reason why the longevity shouldn't be celebrated. The point there about drinking alcohol, I think that's the, the reason why most of us never made it as professional footballers, let alone the, uh, the, the lack of perhaps talent in the first place. Moving on this morning, um, we're going to finish up looking ahead to the uh, weekend Premier League fixtures. Um, Neil, we're going to come to you first. I think the, the the kind of headline fixture this weekend has to be Liverpool against Manchester United. Um, and I was just looking at it and I was thinking back to kind of 11 months ago and it's so weird how quickly football can change. Um, you know, when, when Manchester United were heading to Anfield, they were the team kind of struggling to make the top four. Obviously, eventually didn't get in there, but but they were the kind of ones that, that were kind of struggling and battling and Liverpool were the ones going for a quadruple, obviously didn't make it. Fast forward 11 months and roles very much reversed. One team on the up and one team struggling to get back to their former glories. And, and it's just, it's so different, the subplots this year. And But Liverpool heading into it have, you know, that confidence boosting win against Wolves. And, and as I said, their three wins in the last four in the Premier League. Because Manchester United wins against Barcelona, winning the Carabao Cup, coming back from behind to beat West Ham in midweek as well in the FA Cup to keep that quadruple talk alive. Does it does form go out the window? Perhaps in this, are we are we perhaps you know kind of should we expect a, a cagey affair perhaps a cagey affair rather than perhaps a, a kind of open free flowing game that we might always want as the purists? Well, where do you start? I mean, look, I, my, my feelings about Manchester United are that, that they're pretty much like a bottle of pop at the moment that you've you've shaken and um, they've pretty much taken the lid off and all the frustration and all the soul searching and all the money and. Everything else that's gone into sort of making the last, what was it, eight, seven or eight years, such a barren spell for them. You know, there's such fantastic momentum surrounding the football club at the moment. Everybody wants to play. You know, I think it's, ref- I actually think it's a reflection of the, uh, probably the issues inside the, the United dressing room that caused firstly by Paul Pogba and secondly by Cristiano Ronaldo, that now these sort of spectres have, have sort of disappeared, that the, 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 the proper players can get on with the business of actually doing what they're paid to do and winning them. that is winning some football. That is, yes, there's been some, you know, fairly canny signings which have helped Manchester United. Obviously, this Martinez and Casemiro have been the, been the main two. But yeah, I mean, you know, if you throw enough money at a situation in any walk of life, um, you're going to see that the, the problems eventually go away. And I get the feeling that, you know, yes, Ten Hag, Eric Ten Hag has made the, those big decisions and made the right calls on them. Um, and I get the feeling that there is a pretty much an unstoppable force with Manchester United at the moment. Um, and, and, and somebody said to me last week, have you seen their running? Uh, and I had a look at the running and the only, Matt touched upon Arsenal's running uh, earlier on. And it was it not for the fact that I couldn't see Arsenal dropping too many points. I think um, a few quid of the housekeeping running might be going on Manchester United because, you know, they have got quite a comfortable running by that, you know, by what you would, most people would look at the table and look at the teams they're playing and say, well, they should win that, should win that, should win that. I think Liverpool, on the other hand, you know, it seems a, a, an eon ago that they were going and teaching Manchester United a lesson uh, and racking up a five-goal victory and were fully deserving of that victory. Um, but, but, you know, it, that was that was some result on, on Wednesday night, uh, sorry, last night uh, against Wolves. Wolves, are, you know, a tough nut to crack. Uh, and there was, you know, it's a difficult thing to try and sort of fight for, really. If you go for the tie, and you can sort of get all your ducks in a row. But, you know, fourth is this nebulous. Yes, it's great, but, you know, it means Champions League qualification. You're actually winning anything. So for them to be able to sort of like keep going and keep turning in these performances and keep churning out those three points, all goes well for the, their end of season running. But 
I just think there's such great momentum with so surrounding Manchester United at the moment. It's very difficult to look beyond them and think that they won't come away with three points. Matt, we're going to continue with our buzzword of momentum, as I mentioned it, and Neil mentioned it there as well, and you mentioned it earlier about Arsenal having an opportunity to build some momentum with their their home uh, games to come and against teams down near the bottom. Um, Mikel Arteta was asked about that uh, ahead of the game against Everton and obviously how crucial this run would be with all these games, these, these perhaps winnable games uh, with their own fans behind them. And that's it as well, isn't it? That when you look at these games and, and perhaps in the past, you know, of, of previous Arsenal sides, you may have looked at them and still expected them to win it. But, you know, this kind of old, old idea that they had this soft underbelly that they might still get turned over. You look at this time last year, you know, when they were chasing top four and, and defeats against Brighton, defeats against Southampton, um, at a still, similar stage in the season, derailed eventually that, that top four bid, unfortunately, for them. This time around, it kind of seems a little bit different, doesn't it? And, and to dispatch Everton as they did, and as you saw on Wednesday night with such ease, will give them that belief again that this isn't a banana skin that's going to come and the next one after that isn't a banana skin. And that, you know, as you said earlier, they can start racking up these wins in a row, get that momentum and really, really put the pressure on Manchester City. Yeah, it's like you say, um, there's no medals for finishing fourth. It's just a huge bonus for the for the men upstairs, isn't it? So and I think they lost, lost to their eye off the ball and they know they did last season. And losing it that fourth place to Spurs of all teams, I think, has uh, pushed them on this season. Uh, and I, I think they'll hark back to that. Artes is what well, we've all seen from uh, the documentaries that he's one to draw on past experiences and remind people of the various emotions they felt. I'm sure they'll be pulling on that uh, when they face a Bournemouth team that you'd expect them to roll over. Um, but they will be focused again. Um, you know, accidents happen. But I think weirdly the pressure, because they go first against Newcastle, the pressure's on Manchester City. You know, it's all very well saying, oh, they can put the pressure on, but but they've got to do that. They've got to go out there early, which is never a popular time to kick off on a Saturday lunchtime uh, and, you know, put down that marker because otherwise they could, you know, people say, oh, they'd be breathing down their necks. Well, actually, they could be eight points adrift by by the end of the weekend. Uh, and suddenly that's that's a chasm. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, and, um, and on the subject of momentum, I'm very interested to see what sort of performance Chelsea can put in against Leeds because they've got zero momentum at the moment. Um, if anything, negative momentum. Um, they need to, I mean, Leeds will be up for that. The Leeds away fans will be up for that. Um, it's always been a hell of a fixture for for Brave Arts. And I don't know how many of those they've got in that Chelsea dressing room at the moment for all the money they've spent. Uh, there's a lot of young developing talents that, that aren't quite there yet and perhaps aren't ready for that kind of blood and guts encounter that they're going to face. And, and there's sort of going to be a real test of uh, of what uh, Potter can put in the instill into his team uh, as to whether they'll get a result there. And they desperately need one. Matt, I'm just going to stay with you then on, on Chelsea there. I was, going to, I was going to go to Man City next, but we'll stick, we'll stick with Chelsea for the time being. Um, and just on Potter, obviously back at home, um, there was pressure after the last game uh, at Stamford Bridge after losing to Southampton. Even more pressure now after losing to Tottenham. You know, let, let's be honest. Top four is probably a pipe dream for them now. It's, it's not, it's it, it gone from them. What's the reaction that Potter's going to get from the Chelsea fans at Stamford Bridge? You know, you look on social media, there's a, you know, after every defeat, there's sack Potter or Potter out, it's trending. Um, and equally for, for Graham Potter himself as, as a man, as a person, you know, he's spoken so much about the, the pressures of management, obviously the abhorrent death threats that him and his, his family received last week as well, spoke about those. Um, but but one of one of one of my colleagues was saying to me in the week that you know kind of looking at that press conference after the, the Tottenham defeat in particular, and I think it's kind of been built into this. I think you could see it in previous press conferences as well. 
he almost looks like a broken man now that he's kind of that that how it's gone at Chelsea hasn't gone as he would have liked and it, it's kind of it's starting to get into him unfortunately one of the best and brightest young managers that we've got in England and and unfortunately it just looks like it it might be taking its toll for him what do you expect the Chelsea fans to be like towards him on, on Saturday at least when the game kicks off um, will, will they be behind him from the off or might it be some murmurings of discontent amongst the uh, the Stamford Bridge faithful? I think they'll be behind it from the off, but I think that will run out fairly quickly if, if things don't go their way. Um, it's not a very sympathetic place, football. Um, and I've been a uh, few of those. Is it, the post-match press conferences are a law to themselves. The emotions are running high. You know, you don't really get a true sense of what someone's feeling or thinking. But I've been at some of the pre-match ones. And I'll be honest, he's very likable person um he's charming he's self-deprecating um he's no illusions under the size of the job he's got but i come away thinking you sound like a man who is struggling who's, who's struggling to cope and he's obviously he's used the word struggle himself um and if i'm a player watching that on sky news or whatever and every 15 minutes for the rest of the day i don't want to see that from my manager I want a manager who says, no, no, we, I'm on top of it. I know what we need to do. This is what we'll do, blah, blah, blah. And I, I don't know how that motivates a dressing room, uh, which the owners have spent a stupid amount of money compiling. And, uh, and they seem to be willing to throw this season away. I mean, part of the thinking of it is, is that uh, Graham Potter's a manager who does his best work on the training ground. And by being so bad this season, at least Chelsea have the benefit that they've had in the recent seasons of not having any European football at all. That's great if it works and they bounce back from 10th to finish first under Conte. And if Potter does that, you know, hats off to the owners for belief and we'll all be applauding, you know, loyalty to your manager and all the rest of it. But if we get to November next year, October, November next season, having written off this season and Chelsea are again fifth or sixth, even with the spare time, then they've kind of got to act and they've already written off another season. And uh, you know, the money's going to run out eventually. Um, if not, then the financial fair play boys are going to come knocking. So this project just seems, it seems like the new owners thought, well, I'll tell you what, no one really does this long-termism where we get a bunch of youngsters and trust the young, untried manager. And there's a reason for that. It's not that no, no one else is clever enough. It's the fact that there's a very long track record of it not working. Uh, and they've put a lot of faith in this coming good and a lot of money. Uh, and uh, I'm surprised the clock. I mean, I can't see, I can't see, I, I think they'll stick with him this season because they've made their bed to lie in. But, you know, the pressure's really going to be an intense next season. Uh, and he's got to start working very quickly from, from the off in, in August. Right, moving on to uh, Manchester City now. Matt made uh, a fair point about the pressure that might be on them. You know, I'd initially noted this down as uh, on, on the running order as being an advantage playing first, or, or at least the opportunity of an advantage to try and put the pressure on Arsenal. But as, as Matt said there, the pressure perhaps is on them to perform to get that win. And I wonder, with City having been, you know, as long as Pep Guardiola's been here pretty much, you know, aside from a couple of seasons, City have always been the leaders and well out in front at this stage. And, and everyone's, you know, hunting them now they are the hunters is that a difference in mindset for this team can they cope with that is it a different pressure it, it, it's a very different setup to this team that they're perhaps used to or at least the mindset that they're perhaps used to at this stage in the season when as I said you know they're usually the ones out in front with the targets on their back rather than them looking at targets on backs 
Absolutely. And I think the, the biggest point to make on that is, you know, even though they're chasing Arsenal, the, the difficult sort of scenario they have to navigate is Arsenal, considering they haven't won a title since 2004, they actually look extremely comfortable coping with the pressure. Um, I was at the City game um, a couple of weeks ago now, and in the second half, you really felt like that was a swing of the pendulum. You know, City's big players stepped up. Arsenal missed a few chances through Nketiah. You know, I left the Emirates that day thinking that this was the moment where Arsenal sort of start to fall away. But actually, you know, fast forward a few days, City draw at Forest um, and Arsenal won at Aston Villa. And and that that win at Aston Villa wasn't just a win and three points. It was actually such a... The, the character they showed that day to to dig out a win when they were not only behind after a couple of minutes, but, you know, they were effectively short of ideas at, at half time and and they never panicked. They they really kept their composure. Um, you know, Odegaard missed an absolute sitter and you really did think at that point, you know, Arsenal's heads are gonna go here, but still they they kept going. Um and, and that's the issue for City. I really feel like Arsenal and, and certainly Arteta, the, the mentality is instilled into this squad. It's just it, it's exceptional. It, it has all the makings of a, a title team now. And I I really do believe if if Arsenal navigate these next four favourable fixtures, including three at home against Bournemouth, Palace and Leeds. I don't see them dropping, you know, dropping too many points. I do fancy City to beat Arsenal at the Etihad, but even then, you know, Arsenal may have a lead where they can afford a, a potential hit. Um, and, and talking specifically about this weekend, I think now's a good time to play Newcastle. I feel like City will probably win that game. I feel like Newcastle were enduring a little bit of a dip and they're not quite operating at that same level, specifically defensively. Um, but the problem with City is they're like a box of chocolates. Obviously, you, you really don't know what City are going are gonna to turn up at this point. They've had so many moments where they look like they've turned a corner and then out of nowhere, they, they drop points against a team they're expected to beat. I think Guardiola's still trying to sort of find that 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 perfect formula. We've seen a little bit of rotation at left back. Um, Ake's been playing. Uh, Bernardo's been playing a, a sort of strange role on the left side of defence. And they, they've not quite clicked into that that top gear, whereas Arsenal have maintained at that, that level and they've got that consistency with their starting eleven. So it, it's hard. I, do, I can look past City coming back, but at this stage, I'm, I'm prepared to, to change my title prediction on the basis of the past three games where... Arsenal have weathered the storm and they look stronger than ever. Neil, switching from the top of the table to the bottom um, just to finish today's show. Um, as ever, there are plenty of games uh, between sides that are at the foot of the table. This weekend, we've got Southampton against Leicester and we've got Nottingham Forest against Everton. I suppose, given the fact that uh, there are so many teams, much like we've got so many London teams that it seems to be a London derby every weekend, given that there are still so many teams involved in that fight at the bottom, that we do almost have you know these big games against themselves. Uh, almost every week and definitely one or two uh, every weekend and these games these are the crucial ones aren't they because they are yeah, I, I hate to go into the cliche territory but they are the six pointers aren't they you know you look at you know take take that Forest Everton game for example Forest win that and they move eight points clear of, uh, or, or seven points clear sorry of uh, of Everton they lose that and there's an only a one point gap between them and, and seven points at this stage in the season is for teams that are struggling for results as you know given the fact that they're down at the bottom is quite clear the seven-point gap is quite big, and a one-point gap makes you start to be a little bit more nervous, doesn't it? Like these these games and the gaps between them, they're they're all huge at this stage. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are two. In fact, I would say there are three really uh, vital games uh, this this weekend. Matt's touched on Chelsea. I mean, I just want to pick up on Chelsea just a little bit for what it's worth, like ten penneth. But um, I feel that uh, Todd Bailey and his recruitment team have totally um, held uh, Grand Potter out to hung rather Grand Potter out to dry here. You know, they've given him a, a group of players and then confused it beyond belief by throwing a load more at it. You know, any new manager has to come in. You know, it's the old cliche and cliches that they'll drop out in football because they're palpably true. But Potter would have wanted to have given people as much of a chance to, you know, impress him and for him to make his mind up about them. And he's not only had to, he's not, not, not only had to look at the, the players that he inherited, but he's also had to like try and make assessments of, you know, um, the seven, eight, nine, or whatever it is that Billy and his recruitment team have thrown at him. It's just, you know, hang on to run a big football club, lesson one. You know, he's, he's, he's pretty much been, you know, uh, written there by Todd Bailey. And I feel that Grand Potter has been horribly undermined. And unfortunately, as a figurehead, I think that the, the weight of pressure may tell at Chelsea before the end of the season. I, 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 I hear what Matt's saying and Brian's saying. I just don't know whether or not he's going to get going to get to that, whether or not, you know, the Chelsea fans will turn on him. And I, I'll tell you, if the Leeds are energetic, they are, they've got goals in them. They will run around. Uh, they'll run around because this is sort of uh, remnants of uh, it's what Jesse Marsh and obviously Marce- uh, Marcelo Bielsa did. Uh, they put together really athletic, you know, energetic teams, and I think that um, you know that Leeds are going to be able to get out of it because they've got some goals in them. I think their problem's been not being able to organise at the back. Moving on to Forest and Everton, like you say, a monumental shift um, in the in the uh, in the paradigm for Forest if they can actually get get seven or eight points clear. Um, if you notice with Forest, they tend to do pretty well when they go, if they can go a goal up in games. Steve Cooper works uh, very much, you know, in and out of possession. And he's got, I think he, he does, he has got two training pitches. One is set up for when you're in possession, one is set up for when you're out of possession. And they are quite rigid. And obviously with the city ground uh, crowd behind them, they've been a, a real difficult nut to crack when they go a goal up, as uh, Spurs found out in the Carabao Cup, Liverpool have found out. Um, so, yeah, that, that one's going to be a, an interesting one. And then Leicester and, and Southampton, you know, it's looking pretty bleak for Southampton given the events of, of last night. And and I get the feeling that, that um, Brendan Rodgers is nursing James Madison through to the end of the season. He left him out on Tuesday night against um, Blackburn, but said after the match that he would be fit for the game at St, uh, game at St. Mary's. And uh, I, I do think that Madison, if he's fit and available, will be able to, uh, see that Leicester end up with enough points to stave off relegation. If they don't, it could be a struggle for them because there's not any natural goals in that side. But Madison seems to be the gel that holds everything together. And it's only a couple of weeks since we were, you know, looking at Leicester and saying, is there a problem there after they beat Spurs 4-1? But that that probably reflects more on Spurs than it, than, than it does on Leicester. So yeah, big weekend. Uh, pretty could, could be a decisive one in the, in, in the race to sort out a bit of, of the week from the chaff down there. For sure, uh, a big weekend in the Premier League at both ends. Uh, and of course, you can stay up to date with all the latest uh, from it across the Mirror, across the Star and across the Express website. Um, my thanks to Matt, Ryan and Neil for joining us on the show today. Hopefully normal service will resume next foot with John Cross back in the hosting chair so you don't have to put up with my voice any longer. Uh, but for now, it's goodbye. <laughs>